This episode is brought to you by Watchmen on HBO. Nominated for four Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Drama Series. The first season was hailed by critics as drop-dead fantastic, breathtaking, and like nothing else on television. Catch up on all episodes now, streaming only on HBO. Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... Noah Baumbach, writer and director of the new film Marriage Story. What can happen in a divorce is it sort of reveals the cracks in the you know, in the foundation and, and the cracks actually break open in a divorce. So it's like your parents are left in some sense revealed. I felt like there was that opportunity in a sense here that in telling the story of the, of a marriage coming apart, I could actually focus even more clearly on the marriage itself, that it could be a story about marriage as much as it was a story about divorce. That's coming up. But now I'm here with my colleagues Jen Yamato and Justin Chang to talk about some of the latest culture news. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on to talk about these movies. Well, I want to talk about two kind of major year-end movies, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, and Cats. Memories. Well, now let's, let's start by talking about Star Wars. It's the conclusion of the Skywalker family saga. Justin, you reviewed the movie for the paper. Give us kind of an overview of your, your thoughts on the movie. Yeah, this is the, of course, climactic ninth official episode of the grander Star Wars saga and the conclusion of this latest trilogy, which began with The Force Awakens. And then we have this movie, which I kind of enjoyed while I was watching it. I quoted my friend who I brought to the screening in my review. I quoted him. He says, the movie just kind of has that Star Wars flavor. It doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's bad. But you're in it. You're getting that flavor. It's hitting that sweet spot of just some amalgam of action and comedy. And just the spirit is right. It's like the packaging on the outside of the box. You know what's going to be inside. It is, and it's harder to do. And I actually think, yeah, this movie probably does that better than The Last Jedi did, but that's also because The Last Jedi was a way better movie. And the weird thing is, I I didn't want to fall into this. Like, I am so, I am not a Star Wars fan. I am not an obsessive. I don't, it was the last thing I would have expected would be to get dragged into these ridiculous fan wars. But I actually do think when a movie as good as the previous one comes along, it does deserve to be celebrated. And I do think that this movie, as entertaining as it was, it's very. It throws a lot of stuff at you. And then when you look at it quite closely, you realize that the story decisions they made are really questionable. The representational choices they made are extremely questionable. I know Jen can jump Rose in on some of these too. Tico, where is she? Yeah, and you know, it's like, it's like, okay, you don't think she's that great a character or something. You don't want to put her front and center. Okay, but the way they do it even is just like, oh, you're staying home. Yeah, it's pretty insulting. <laughs> it's, I lo- can I just say, you don't seem to really get sucked into these fandoms or <laughs> franchises, but I love how strongly you do feel about this. Thank you. I mean, I don't consider myself card-carrying fanboy geek at all if we're talking just, you know, big, epic fantasy sci-fi franchises. When done right, I really do believe in the power of popular movies. I love a lot of different kinds of movies, but there is something 
where you are looking around the audience and you feel like the entire audience is just in this movie's grip of a really great movie. Maybe to kind of move along from a movie that sort of was forced to wrap up storylines across nine separate films, we now should talk about a truly singular movie event. I'm talking, of course, about Cats, the adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical directed by Tom Hooper. Jen, is this movie so bad? It's amazing. Is it just amazing? What is it about Cats? Oh my goodness. Where do I start? I saw Cats the same day I saw Rise of Skywalker, which was such whiplash to to go from one to the other in the span of a single day. But going into Cats, I, I did not know quite what to expect. I also, for the record, do not subscribe to the So Bad It's Good school of ironic enjoyment. But... Cats is probably going to be exactly that for a lot of people. I think there's the curiosity factor. If you see the trailer, you're like, what are these creatures? What is this? Even if you're familiar with the original Broadway musical, which was a huge hit, you know, it was marketed very well decades ago. This is transposed to a modern setting by Tom Hooper, the director of Les Miserables. And you see some barely there CG fur transforming it, this human cast into sort of like digital abominations of half <laughs> half human, half cat dancing bipedal creatures. As a cat owner, I was I was shaken <laughs> by the experience. But I will say that it has stayed with me. I have now been trying in vain to get the songs out of my head. I'm still pondering questions like what is a jellical cat. It stayed with me in a way that I can only describe as somewhere between haunting and captivating. Jellicals can do that, and and they do, <laughs> because I don't usually subscribe to the so bad it's good theory yeah. either. Although, of course, if I were to think about examples of movies that have that effect on me, I, I could find some probably. I echo Jen in that maybe this is it. Cats, I think, is a movie that plays pretty terribly when you are watching it. Punctuated every so often by kind of, oh, this is kind of awesome moments. But the great stretch of it is actually quite tedious. Dramatically I, tedious. Really? I mean, oh, yeah. Yes. And and I mean, and that is partly a function of, you know, Cats was always going to be a difficult thing to film. And they actually do add some narrative tissue to this one. But it's a fairly plot light story. I said my his review, it's like <laughs> Cats in a singing suicidal Olympics. You know, it's like. Yes. <laughs> or like yeah. Cat American Idol Ca- or something. Oh, Jen. Yeah. You have it's, that right Basically, this tribe that calls themselves Jellicle Cats, they're smaller than normal-sized cats for some reason I cannot fathom. You know, you said Cat American Idol. I guess we could all say it's like, whose feline is it anyway? Is it that the effects are weird? Is it that the staging is strange? Like, what is it that makes this movie so singularly odd? It's a combination of those things. So I'm trying to think, like, what would have been, you know, it's interesting that the movie that was originally going to be made for this long ago was an animated film. You know, people are saying Uncanny Valley, and that's a pretty good way to put it. This movie sort of falls into a, a neither fish nor fowl nor cat kind of realm because it's like it's it it doesn't it's not realistic but there is realism at the same time and of course it has a star-studded cast from everybody from james corden to mm -hmm. rebel wilson to judy dench to jennifer hudson ian meow killen 
The, the, oh, to damn. Jennifer Hudson, yes. Don't Who, forget Taylor Swift. And Taylor, well, here's the thing. I would say Taylor Swift has more of a cameo because she's barely in it. Spoiler alert, I guess. She's barely in it. And I actually think she comes off better than most of the others. I mean, she actually kind of socks over that number that she has. What would you say is your favorite number in the movie? Okay, like, what comes I, off the best? See, for me, this is a musical, right? And it's built around almost wall-to-wall Andrew Lloyd Webber songs with T.S. Eliot lyrics. It's weird in every sensory way imaginable. Your eyes are not only wondering what they are seeing, but you're hearing some of the most bizarre songs and lyrics. It's true. It's like a marathon, a musical marathon of cats introducing themselves in song. I think the thing about this movie is that it never lets you relax. It's not so bad it's good, but like in the moment, I think this movie is pretty excruciating. But it plays better in your head afterward. It plays better when you're thinking about it, even writing about it. It was fun, and I'm glad this terrible movie exists. Well, and and look, I do (laughs) think people should see it so that we are not alone and we can all talk about it. So just to sum up. Cats. Well, to some of cats is cats, and therefore cats. Well, no. Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker is sort of blandly exactly the movie you think it's going to be. And then Cats is sort of awful in a truly singular way. I would say that's accurate. It's true. Cats is like, it's the Christmas coal and the Christmas gift this holiday season. It's two in one. Jen? Justin, I thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for helping us find our way through these two movies. And I'm sure we will uh, hopefully hear from what uh, some of our listeners have to say as well. Jellicle Cat. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jellicle Mark. Let's take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Barry on HBO. Nominated for three Golden Globes, including Best Comedy Series. Critics are raving that the second season is the best show on television and audaciously original. For your Golden Globe consideration in all nominated categories. And now we're back. And now... It's time for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. Christmas has passed. New Year's is around the corner. You have, hopefully, a little time in your life to catch up to some movies that will be very big players when Oscar nominations are announced on January the 13th. Opening wide on Christmas Day was Little Women. Definitely need to see this. Even if you think you know Little Women, you don't know Little Women until you see Greta Gerwig's version. 1917, another movie that should be nominated for Best Picture, World War I movie that looks like it was all done in one take as you follow two soldiers from getting a message to hopefully delivering this message. You should have seen The Irishman by now. You should have seen Marriage Story, but you can still see those movies in theaters, even though they've been streaming on Netflix. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I mean, I can't imagine a world in which you haven't seen that movie. That's out on home video. You should have also seen Parasite by now. That's Bong Joon-ho's great dark satiric thriller that's been kind of the indie sensation. It's been playing in theaters for a couple of months. We'll probably be going very strong after nominations are announced because I think it's going to have a great day. And Disappearing from Theaters is another movie that a lot of people love. I'm not one of them. It's Jojo Rabbit. It won the Audience Award at the Toronto Film Festival. It's marketed as an anti-hate satire set in World War II about a little boy who's a little Nazi Hitler youth, has an imaginary best friend named Adolf Hitler. If that sounds like a weird movie, it is a weird movie. I mean, it is an interesting movie. So a lot of choices. Pick one, pick two. I'd say Little Women in 1917, the big movies out in theaters right now. 
Thank you, Glenn. And I'm here today with Noah Bombach, writer and director of the new film Marriage Story. Noah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Noah, for people who aren't familiar with the movie, how do you describe it to people? Well, I, I describe it as a love story, but it's it's a love story, but it's also the story of a divorce. From the time that the movie first premiered earlier this year, it played at festivals at Venice and Telluride in Toronto. The response to it has just been really tremendous. What has that been like for you? Like, Why do you think this movie has kind of garnered the response that it has? What's been nice about it, particularly nice about it, is that it often provokes a kind of personal response too. So that when I've talked to people after screenings, I kind of have gotten the movie reflected back at me. I, I, I feel like I've learned about the movie by traveling with it and talking to people. I mean, even to the point that people will say really interesting things that I'll later use in, in interviews like this one. So, so observations I make about the movie, you can probably assume I stole from you know people who have come up to me. Although I tried to tell them usually, I say, I, I, I'm going to use that if you don't mind. I suppose there's something about the movie that people bring a lot of themselves to it. And, and so in talking about it, we also talk about, the, we talk about the movie, but we also end up talking about life in general because does this movie feel different for you i mean i don't know if i can even fully assess that because they all feel like their own thing and when i'm asked questions about my career or do you see the connections between this and this and this and this i kind of i do sometimes because they're pointed out to me but i don't think about them uh while i'm making them that way so each movie i'm trying to kind of express something that's you know in my my head that I want to trying to find the cinematic expression of the thing in my head. And that's kind of the challenge for every screenplay and every movie that I direct. They all have their own challenges and their own, their own things. And now with this movie, where did the inspiration come from this idea of like telling a love story through a divorce? Well, like many of my movies, it's many different elements. It's, it's like notes that might be, Things as sort of seemingly small as Adam sings being alive, which was was something that Adam and I had talked about that he should sing that song in a movie or finding a new way to tell a love story or, or, or what I felt would be a kind of different way of telling a love story. And then that coincided, too, with sort of thinking about, you know, divorce. And when I made Squid and the Whale, divorce, one hand's the story of a family getting divorced. You know, I also thought that, well, what divorce provided narratively for me in that movie was it kind of reveals things to kids about their parents. You know, kids naturally kind of just believe, you know, this is how it is and they know best. And, you know, maybe when you get older, you look back and you say, oh, well, actually they were faking it. I, they, they didn't, they didn't know everything I thought they knew, but what can happen in a divorce is it sort of reveals the cracks in the you know, in the foundation and, and the cracks actually break open in a divorce. So it's like your parents are left, you know, in, in some sense revealed. I felt like there was that opportunity in a sense here too, that in telling the story of the of a marriage coming apart, I could actually focus even more clearly on the marriage itself, that it could be a story about marriage as much as it was a story about divorce. All through your career, you've always gotten these questions about what is and isn't sort of drawn from your own life. And is there a point when you're writing when it becomes fiction, where whatever sort of real life inspiration things might be drawn from sort of leave you and becomes these characters in this story? It really is when I start writing. I think it's, I'm not able to write it until I see the story, until I see the fiction. 
I might notes I might be taking could be observations from my life. It could be something that's happened to me. It could be in the case of this research, I did interviews with other people, a line somebody said to me about their marriage or all of those things kind of exist as sort of on the page as intriguing ideas or things that feel like they could be something, something else or could help guide me or tell the story for me. And I don't think it's certainly not with this one until I sat down writing it. I couldn't really start writing and moving forward till the fiction kind of took over. I've heard you talk about the research that you did for this movie, talking to people who had been divorced, people who are, for lack of a way to put it, work in the divorce industry. Had you ever done anything like that before? Not to this extent, no. I mean, I've done it for different different stories. I mean, on Meyerowitz, I talked to doctors and nurses and people in sort of the hospital world because that was a part of that movie and I wanted to get that right and and also you know dig deeper into that world but but no on this one it was to the extent that I researched it was it was much much more vast because the movie draws so much drama just from the process of getting divorced like finding a lawyer all this series of hearings you have to go to there's some kind of the mechanics of divorce that I've never really seen in a in a movie before yeah well that struck me when I was doing the research that I felt like that I hadn't quite seen that I mean, it is the stuff of procedurals. It's the th- it's the stuff of often, I guess, like murder trials in movies. Or I mean, there's a whole TV industry based on 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 court procedural and lawyers and investigators. I I guess I I had that same kind of thought that I hadn't quite seen that as it applies to divorce. And you know, it can be somewhat transformative for people in in their kind of civilian lives who are on one hand going through an incredibly emotional time, very vulnerable time, a time of feeling a failure, a time of feeling, you know, all the things that come up when we go through breakups, you know, and particularly divorces. But then when you throw the legal element into it, when the whole notion of going to court is part of your breakup, I mean, that's just on the face of it is, is intense, you know, and kind of absurd, but that's the way it is. And so, you know, I felt like, there was a lot there to explore. Well, the whole middle section of the movie, it really is that the process is driving their behavior. Like the way they that the two characters, maybe Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, begin to interact with each other, the way they come to view each other. So much of that seems driven by the process of getting divorced. Right, right. Because it is, uh, it does take over in a sense. As that sequence begins, the way we shot it, the first time they're in the conference room with Nora and Bert talking, my DP and I, we, we kind of approached it as if in the beginning of the scene, as if it would be almost a, a scene of conversation between Charlie and Nicole, like they're sitting across from each other where we shoot them first in close ups and then over their shoulders and we keep cutting back and forth, but only between them. But they're not saying anything. We're just hearing these other voices, which almost work as like internal monologue or thoughts and it's the lawyers talking and I thought well this is a way to kind of introduce to what you're saying to introduce this notion of your voice is is almost stripped from you you have this sort of avatar now talking as your advocate literally and figuratively and from that point sort of through the courtroom I felt like you know also the fact that they're kind of performers by profession you now have these lawyers performing for them in a way too that it was like another kind of play or theater in a kind of perverse way and 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 even those rooms feel a bit like proscenium's and and we were sort of thought of that as well of sort of the way we shot them as as if they were you know again other other stages of sorts and then the the sequence where they get into their fight which people have 
you know, often bring up when they talk to me about the movie. One thing I've said is it's also the placement of that scene because it does come after this this sort of section where they have kind of lost lost their agency. And it's like I saw that scene, among many things, as a way, a scene of them trying to find voice again, almost like children trying to learn language. And then I want to be sure to just ask about your shooting style. This movie in particular, there's something that is both very precise and still feels very loose about it. Like there's a scene in the movie when Nicole is trying to serve Charlie with their divorce papers. And the whole scene takes place in the kitchen of her mother's house. And at first it's very funny. There's lots of people kind of coming and going. There's something almost farcical about it. And then it just pivots so quickly to something much more emotionally kind of vivid and and resonant. And, and how does a sequence like that come together? Well, it had all those elements kind of baked into it because as you say, it does pivot to something, you know, from something more almost screwball comedy-like to something more dramatic. The dramatic is always, even throughout the sort of screwball portion of it, the dramatic is always present. I mean, that the introduction of the envelope, which has the divorce papers in it, and this notion of serving and serving your own husband. You know, again, it, it, it's a very serious notion, and it's also kind of a scary notion, too, but for everyone, for her, for him. But it is also absurd. And also the notion of trying to orchestrate a moment, you're going to do this. And there's both this sort of sort of formality of it, but they're trying to take the formality out of it. And and I felt like in a way when I was working on a scene like that, and it was true of a lot of scenes, I just had to be kind of aware of all the different tones. But I didn't necessarily need to push them. It was just more to acknowledge them. So it wasn't like I was writing comedy to lighten up the drama or writing drama to to make the comedy more serious. It was kind of being aware that these things were always existing side by side. I've heard a number of actors who've worked with you, people always say how like you don't like improvisation, that the words on the script are the words they should say. Yet this movie still feel really lived in and natural. Is it difficult to move from the precision of the language and the rhythms that you want, even with blocking, to then have it still feel like it's real people doing real things? I find it's the opposite. I think it's actually having that structure allows for all the freedom you're talking about. I think it's not unlike how I would imagine you might shot list and and uh, set up like a stunt sequence in an action movie or something where the whole notion of it for the audience is for it to feel chaotic, dangerous. But of course, on a set, you've got to be safe and make sure everything is taken care of and that, you know, we know how the car is going to turn over and that we've done it before and they've rehearsed it with the stuntman. Now they're going to put the actor, you know, all those things that you do. I don't think it's that dissimilar. I find if actually if you have all of this stuff kind of taken care of, the actors then are lifted of any burden of having to do anything except be in the moment. And we see it in the movie. I mean, I think they could then feel safe so they could do what they need to do, which is kind of reveal themselves you know, but they also have the mask of the words and this blocking. And I think that actually gives them more freedom to reveal themselves because they're protected in a sense. It's not their words. It's their mind. People have been talking so much about the two performances by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. And Adam's an actor you've worked with a few times now. And just from hearing the two of you talk about it, I get the sense you've become quite close over the few years you've known each other. What is it about Adam that kind of draws you back to him? What do you like about him as a performer and a person? Well, I mean, as an as an actor, I mean, besides the fact that he's just fantastic, is I think when I first met him, there was something kind of immediately familiar about him, but also it was familiar. But then at the same time, the way he would 
delivered the lines, even in the audition audition scenes that he did, that immediately surprised me. So it was like that sort of interesting combination. I mean, it's what we look for in partners and friends. You know, it's like they're both you recognize something, you know, you're also caught off guard at the same time. And I find that it continues working with Adam. You know, I'll give him the script. Generally, by the time we actually start reading it together, he's already memorized it. So, you know, something that he's both very inside the lines, maybe he starts to say something and changes his mind somehow in the middle of the sentence and starts saying something else. And he will have a reason and a thought behind all of that. So once we even begin together, I find he's just inside the movie. And again, the lines are coming back to me. It's what people say, but somebody once said about great poetry. It's like your own thoughts brought back to you with added majesty. And I do find that that's how I feel working with him. It's like this, both how I hear it in my head, but also reinterpreted. And it's something only he can do. And what he does with it, that, that then transforms it for me. And this is true of Scarlet as well. It's like, and when scenes are really working, and part of the reason I like to do a lot of takes is when actors are inside it and doing what they do, I often get ideas from what they're doing. They may do it a few times and it's interesting or working in some way, but what they've done actually is revealed the scene or elements of the scene to me that I didn't necessarily you know, have going in or didn't have consciously going in. So it gives me ideas and then I come up with direction and notes and thoughts that I wouldn't necessarily have, but really they're telling it to me through what they're doing. When you began working with Adam, he was not a star necessarily, and he's become quite famous in the course of time that you've been working with him. Mm-hmm. And with Scarlett, it's somewhat the opposite. She's like coming to you already as a big established star. How does that change the dynamic as you're approaching working with her? I mean, it doesn't essentially change anything. That part of it doesn't essentially change anything. I, I find part of what my job is as a director working with an actor for the first time is kind of understanding their their approach, what they, how they like to work while at the same time presenting them with how I like to work so that I can help if, if it isn't, you know, second nature to them, it's a, then I can kind of help bring them into how I like to do it. I mean, Adam happens to ha- like kind of approach it and similarly how I do, he likes doing a lot of takes. He likes rehearsing a lot. Uh, he likes to just keep pressing down on these scenes and seeing what else you're going to get from them. And Scarlett does too, but I think Scarlett also likes time away. She would often talk about the need for like breaks and things that where she would need to sort of process before she goes back in. Part of it is being aware of that, again, trying to both help her and maybe push at times, but also learn from her what works best for her and sort of be, you know, open to both of those things. I do find that, and it's true with with every actor, part of the job is to, you know, is to listen. I mean, it is like any kind of conversation. It's like people have different rhythms, they have different ways, but we're all in service of telling this same story. The question of perspective, essentially, does the movie take a side, has been a big part of sort of like the conversation around the movie. It's even become a little bit contentious. How aware were were you of that as you were making the movie? Was that something that you really had in mind? Well, I was really aware of the notion of perspective because I felt like it was actually part of what the movie's about. I mean, people's perspective in a marriage is it's your perspective going in, your perspective while you're in it. And then in the case of a divorce, your perspective leaving. And of course... That's what we do as audiences in movies, too, is we we have a movie presents a perspective and we kind of follow that. So an example I've been sort of using is like Hitchcock had the example of if you're with a burglar and they break into a house and they're trying to fill their bag with whatever the family's jewels and money. And, and then the family comes home and the door opens downstairs 
and they're startled and they the burglar has to figure out, out a way to get out, you're naturally nervous for the burglar. You are with the burglar and you want the burglar to get out because you're you're now implicated in what they've been doing. That example is part of why Hitchcock was such a genius was sort of understanding that. But I was thinking about that in terms of the movie of of earlier part of the movie when when Nicole goes back to Los Angeles, we're with her. I knew that the audience would naturally lean in her direction because that's what you're being presented with. And so she tells her story to Nora. You know, it's it's very moving for her. It's very felt. She's with her family. She's we see her. She's a good mother. She's, you know, of course, we would be sympathetic to her. And then when Charlie returns, we might be even slightly prejudiced against him. But that when the movie then sort of shifts a little bit more with his perspective, and we shot these things, these sequences very specifically from their perspectives. In that first part, Charlie almost feels like a part of Nicole's day. I mean, it's like, you know, when she's going to serve him and he comes in. We weren't with him when he learned about his MacArthur. We're with her hearing about it. So we're also, we're now aware of the sort of difficulty for her. She's supposed to serve him. She, he's just told her this good news. We we understand how she feels now conflicted about it. And likewise, when we sort of shift over to Charlie and he's trying to, he wants Henry to wear the outfit, the Halloween costume that he brought him and, you know, and he's trying to convince her. We're more with him now. Can't you just help out? And she seems kind of you know, removed from him a bit and we don't quite understand why. Later we'll find out. So that naturally the audience would shift now a little bit towards Charlie and and that once we arrive in the, the sequence we were talking about earlier in Nora's conference room, we again, we started very deliberately on both of them and now we're equally with both of them. We're over equally over both their shoulders. Even when the lawyers are talking, we remain over the shoulders of Charlie and Nicole and that's true for every interaction, any interaction either of them have with the outside world throughout the movie. We're always either with one or the other or both of their perspectives visually. Again, not in a way that would call attention to it, but just I think uh, sub- subconsciously, you know, the audience would have, would know where they are. So I think all of that was sort of by design. So I'm not surprised, I guess is a long way of saying it. I'm not surprised that people, you know, have differing ideas or opinions. I think, and I think it, sh- it does shift throughout the movie, you know, because we were aware of that. Early in the film, there's a scene after like a theatrical performance where Charlie gives a performance note to Nicole. And I'm probably not getting the phrase exactly right, but he says that he felt that she was pushing for the emotion in the scene. How aware are you of that, of how hard in a given scene, like you're you're pushing the emotion or you're getting the actors to sort of push for the emotion in the scenes? The scene you're talking about, I liked that that notion that you know, that perhaps she has trouble crying on on stage. And then, but then of course we see her then crying effortlessly in real life, you know, because it's, uh, they're two entirely different things. You know, it's, it, it, it's something that often comes up, you know, when I'm writing a script, I'll have, you know, specific moments maybe where someone cries or, and, and I always think twice about showing actors those moments because you don't want them to feel the pressure of having to cry, you know, at a given spot because then it often can be a distraction or you know you don't want the gold the crying should only be accompanying what's already happening in the scene not it shouldn't be the goal of the scene 
with this movie, all these sort of different different emotions were kind of oh, ever present in so many of these scenes because of the story we were telling. You know, I think for Adam and Scarlett, really their job was to be kind of open to the truth of the moment. And I think so that the tears really came quite naturally for both of them. And they both talked about this afterward, after we were shooting. I remember talking to them about it because it, there were specific moments. I mean, you know, Adam's breaking down in that at the end of that fight sequence. It's actually very specific where he breaks down in the script, which is the moment he breaks down in the movie, which is in the middle of saying the line he says to her. I'd written that very specifically with full knowledge that that's going to become that's a challenge because you don't again, you don't want an actor distracted. You don't want them backing up from that moment. You want them arriving at that moment. They were both incredibly present, but able to execute these very specific things that were scripted and important, I thought, for the movie. Without being too simplistic about it, I want to ask you just about the ending of the movie. Considering all that the characters have been through, there's something unexpectedly upbeat and hopeful. Where do you see the ending of the movie kind of leaving these two characters? I kind of felt the score should show compassion and celebration and love, and but that it should really honor them because they are going through an incredibly hard time in this movie. And they do have good intentions. They're imperfect people, but they have good intentions. They both want to be the best parents they can be. And I felt like they should be rewarded in some way for that. And I felt that the music always kept that in mind. I feel it's hopeful. I think, you know, it was another triumph of the human spirit movie. People going through an incredibly hard time, but coming out okay. There are times in the movie where the notion of any kind of compromise seems near impossible. You've got two entirely different cities lying in the balance. You've got, you know, these lawyers who seem, you know, like they're never going to bend. And yet these two people find a way to figure it out imperfectly. It's not, it's not a, it's certainly not a a neat uh, figuring it out, but they find a way to, to move forward because they have to. And I think that's hopeful. Well, the new film is Marriage Story. Noah Baumbach, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. We'll be back in two weeks on Friday, January 10th. We hope you have a great break and look forward to sharing more episodes of The Real with you in the new year. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. Happy Holidays! <laughs>